0: to write about creating literary art from experience as a holistic, embodied practice and to frame that work as, um, as political work, as feminist work, as queer liberation work.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics, with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young.
2: If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering tender buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster.
1: Today we are thrilled to have Melissa Phoebos on the show. Melissa is the author of four books, including Whip Smart, Abandon Me, the nationally best-selling essay collection Girlhood, which is a Lambda Literary Award finalist, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and named notable book of 2021 by NPR, Time, The Washington Post, and others. Her craft book, Bodywork, is also a national bestseller, an LA Times bestseller, and an indie next pick. Hey Melissa, thanks so much for coming on Tender Buttons. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I wondered if you could read if you could start by reading a short extract from Bodywork for us. I'd
0: be happy to. So this is from the first chapter in the book in Praise of Navel Gazing. That these topics of the body, the emotional interior, the domestic, the sexual, and the relational are all undervalued in intellectual literary terms and are all associated with the female spheres of being is not a coincidence. This bias against personal writing is often a sexist mechanism founded on the false binary between the emotional female and the intellectual male and intended to subordinate the former. That is, Karl of Nostgard is a genius, a risk-taker for his chronicles of the interior and the domestic, while my female graduate students are terrified to write about being mothers for fear that they will be deemed, or already are, vacuous narcissists. Or, as Maggie Nelson in The Argonaut* says, of a man inquiring how she could possibly pen a book on the subject of cruelty while pregnant, Leave it to the old patrician white guy to call the lady speaker back to her body so that no one misses the spectacle of that wild oxymoron, the pregnant woman who thinks, which is really just a pumped up version of that more general oxymoron, a woman who thinks. While I balked at the idea of writing a memoir as a graduate student, I also shied away from the idea of being a political writer. I had only a hazy idea of what the ideal profile for a political writer or their work should be, but it definitely included having strong and unchanging opinions about politics and surely did not include accounts of the writer's most vulnerable corporeal experiences. Probably I pictured a man. What I did not consider were any of the historical examples of politicized personal writing. Is there any other kind that were often part of a long-standing tradition of testimony, much of which I'd read, like *Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl*, *The Diary of a Young Girl*, *Red Azalea*, and *Night*? Not to mention the many politically powerful memoirs published more recently that I devoured. No, my resistance to and bias against memoir was not based in any lived experience as a writer or a reader. It was my own internalized sexism calling from inside the house to warn me away from telling my own story, because doing so might free me from shame and replace the onus of change onto the society in which we live.
2: I guess there's so much to unpack in that passage, but we were wondering if, to begin with, you could... Tell us why you have chosen Bodywork as the title of your new book. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, first off, I want to apologize to all of the massage therapists who didn't read the back and bought the book, (laughs) thinking it would give them some techniques. Um, But the book came up because, you know, as I was writing these chapters or essays in the book... It was so clear to me when I started to tease apart my own inhibitions about writing memoir and the biases of other people that it was creating, as I alluded to in that passage, this false binary between bodily experience and intellectual work. And so I really wanted to sort of put the intellectual uh, concepts and the idea of intellectual writing back into embodied experience. And... Um, to write about creating literary art from experience as a holistic embodied practice and to frame that work as um, as political work, as feminist work, as queer liberation work, right? That putting our bodies back into our stories. On that note about the body,
1: there is a quote towards um, the end of the book that I really love that if you don't mind, I'm going to read for our listeners. So you said, Our access to pleasure is determined by some extent, by the story we've been told about what a body like ours deserves. Is a character still acting out the story she was taught about her body? For instance, that it was mostly good for sex and that sex should mostly be good for men, or has she written her way out of it as I eventually did? Um, And I love that concept um, of your access to pleasure and how that could be different for each person depending on your access to the world maybe. Um, So I just wondered if you could talk about what you meant by that a little bit.
0: Sure. Yeah. You know, when I was researching my previous book, Girlhood, I, I, I was reading these studies of teenage girls who were sort of pretty empowered in their lives in many ways. They were really good students, they were very ambitious, they were confident. But when they talked to the researchers about their sexual experience and they were asked, for instance, was it a good sexual experience? Was it pleasurable? They would answer on behalf of their partners. They would say, oh, he had a really good time, <laughs> right? So it was this immediate sort of erasure of the self and their own bodies and the centering of the other body, you know? Um, and I think even in the case of, if they had a female partner, it was just this this sort of um, putting someone else at the center of their physical story, you know? And it really caused me to reflect, and that was something I was thinking through as I was writing body work, is um, what are the invisible ways that we decenter ourselves in our own stories? And how do our ideas of memoir or first person narrated stories reiterate that, right? Um, And so I wanted to sort of frame writing about the self as a way of sort of recouping um, the role of protagonist in our own lives, right? And by writing sort of our physical experience and our own pleasure into our own stories, it was a way of sort of um, reaccessing that. and you know it was really sort of shocking and I kind of named this in the book where I was like, oh no, wait, in order to write myself really embodied in the center of my own story, it means I have to live that way. <laughs> like oh no, that was like a bigger undertaking than I was planning on. but at least for me, um, those things, need to mirror each other I can't write an embodied experience unless I am having a body an embodied experience and for me writing writing personal narrative has been has been something that allowed me to step into the center of my own story in terms of pleasure in terms of um, everything but certainly in terms of my bodily pleasure and my embodied experience
2: yes I think that um you mentioned in that passage that you read was the idea of testimony and I guess I was quite interested in thinking through because this it's such a multi-layered term, with there's there's a lot of troubled history around it in terms of legalistic colonial histories of testimony, and then kind of what you're saying here around the claiming the first person within a testimony. I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, like the role of testimony in your writing and and its its power if it reclaimed for the first person.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I sort of came to that way of thinking. By following the voice that was sort of in my head as I write memoir that often, I mean, it really is almost like a little ticker or recording that says no one's interested in this. This has already been done. Who are you to tell this story? Um, And you know, as a teacher, I really heard my students saying the same thing, saying, oh, no one's interested in this. Nothing good enough has ever happened to me. Like, who am I to think that other people should be interested in my story, right? Um, And, you know, when I sort of stepped back a little bit and looked at who writes memoirs and who these people were who were feeling as though they didn't deserve to tell their own story, I thought, oh, of course, they are the people whose whose stories the the power structures of our society depend upon their silence right because mm. for them to tell their stories for us to tell our stories implicitly demands social change right because we're writing about the disenfranchisement of people who have been historically marginalized or oppressed or exploited or whatever you know um And that's how I sort of got to writing about Freud and hysteria, which was not where I ever expected this book to go. But I thought, oh, right, like he came to this revelation that women who suffered from hysteria were victims of sexual abuse. And society was not ready for that revelation because it was not ready to change you know and so he was like never mind I'm taking it back they must have made it all up you know and when I read that account of his research I thought oh of course it's the same thing this the same way that any wave of sort of social change or civil rights movements is always predicated first on the testimony of people who are being harmed by the society that needs to change. Right. And only when we're ready to change that society, can we amplify those voices? Um, And that that gave me so much, so much more confidence in my own storytelling and gave put so much muscle behind my encouragement of my students, because I thought there's a very long history. Every social movement has begun with people telling their stories and with other people saying, no, 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 no one wants to hear that. We don't want to have to change.
1: Yeah, I also love, so you have an essay in the book called In Praise of Navel Gazing. Um, and I also, I write kind of semi-autobiographical fiction. And naval gazing is like a criticism that gets leveraged at it. And it makes me feel quite angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I loved so much um, what you wrote. So I wondered if you could just maybe explain what that, what people mean by that criticism and like mm-hmm. what your answer to it.
0: Sure, sure. It's amazing how often I've heard it. You know, I've been in creative writing classes and teaching them as a student and in sort of literary circles for my whole adult life. And it's just the most common lodged sort of disparagement of personal writing is that it's navel-gazing, right? Which means it's looking at the self in a way that's not actually interesting to anyone else. It's self-indulgent, it's narcissistic, it's not relevant, Right. Um, and when I started to dig into that idea, both in a figurative way and in a literal way, I was like, who gets called navel gazing? Because Noscard doesn't get called navel gazing. And I don't think he's, you know, what navel gazing means. I, I find his work really interesting. Right. But it's mostly female writers, it's mostly women, um, it's mostly queer people, it's mostly people whose voices are threatening. Right? And who haven't had a lot of space, who haven't been given a microphone to talk about their experience. Um, And I also thought, you know, what is the deal also with it being the navel, like the part of the body, like looking at your belly button or like looking down at your own abdomen? It's literally saying, we're not interested in your body. Like, we're not interested in the stories of these bodies. Right, So we think people writing about disability or people writing about blackness or racism, like we're not interested in stories about those bodies. it's It's been done before. there's only room for one or two. Um And I thought, you know what as a as an actual reader, that is what I'm interested. I'm interested in the embodied stories of of queer people and people of color and of women. And, you know, I'm not a mother, but even birth stories, you know, like the actual naval stories. I am interested in those. This idea that those stories are boring or unexamined or not universal um, has nothing to do with my own reading tastes. And so once I sort of reached that epiphany, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna throw this in the trash because actually it has nothing to do with me. And now when I hear people use the word navel-gazing, it makes me think poorly of them because they're not critical readers of even the terms that are coming out of their own mouths.
2: I was really struck at one point, something that you wrote around that when you're deep inside a project, it's like a trance, like exting of the self. I think kind of what I inferred from that was of like a rational, too stuck in your Mm -hmm. own head kind of thing. I just wondered if you could speak a little bit more to what that state is like and what the process is of writing through that embodied writing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I should say that I am, you know, I'm always trying to dissuade my students from thinking of writing as this like mystical process that overtakes us and we're in the trance and then we wake up and there's a beautiful finished piece of writing (laughs) because it's not at all like that. There's a lot of drudgery. Um, And I'm a pretty... um, sort of pragmatic and circumscribed writer in many ways, I do a lot of research and I make a lot of outlines, Um, but that that moment, that trance-like state, that kind of hypnotic space is, and I think anyone who has an occupation, and by which I just mean a practice, of something that they do, a process, that they love, that they feel sort of fused to in terms of who they are will understand this. There's kind of a flow state that you can get into. And so I've done the research. I've made the outline. I start writing. I've gone through the part where I just want to go get snacks every five minutes because I'm procrastinating. And, And then when I get into the stream of it, right, and I am It feels like I have moved away from the superficial level of thinking, which is where my anxiety and my planning and my fantasizing and my caring what other people think and sort of scrutinizing my work, I've dropped below that. And I'm operating at a deeper level that's less conscious. And I am heeding a set of instincts that I've cultivated over the course of my whole life and my whole writing career. And I'm also accessing an intelligence that is really unself-conscious, right and so I'm not thinking about myself which is ironic given sort of the the, the complaints that are lodged against uh navel-gazing writers I'm not self-conscious I'm not thinking about myself I'm just in the story I'm in the aesthetic work of making something and I just forget myself which is a beautiful thing for humans that are so beset by self-consciousness you know um And I've just learned to trust that set of instincts. Um, And when I'm done, whether it's 20 minutes or seven hours later, um, I often have that sort of raw material from which I can now sort of sculpt and revise and sort of go more into my technical uh, thinking mind when I'm making it it, it into something that, that other people can really access. But the heart of it, like the real meat of it, often comes from that space. That's not me thinking so much as, um, I don't know, c- creating. It's the where the real creative work happens.
1: I was also really interested in what you say about um, kind of trying to find an emotional truth or an emotional honesty in your work and kind of mm-hmm. avoiding insincerity. And you wrote about how that's the kind of tuition or like a skill that you've honed over the years. And I was wondering, if it's possible to explain like how how do how do you know when something feels like someone's telling the truth or that you
0: yourself are telling the truth in your mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. <sighs> sometimes i don't you know <laughs> sometimes i write something and i feel really good about it and then i wait a few hours or days or weeks or years and I come back to it and I think oh no I was just telling myself the story that I wanted to be true you know and there is some instinct that you know I remember once I wrote an essay um that was about uh a really sensitive topic um about that had to do with my relationship with someone else and I wrote it and I was like oh this is really good I think it's done and I submitted it to a contest this was many years ago and I got an email from the editor of the magazine that was running the contest. And she said, you're a finalist for the contest. And I immediately knew that it wasn't ready. I thought, oh no, I need to withdraw it. I'm so sorry, I need to, it's it's not ready. And I just, the idea of someone else seeing it, there was this sort of panic that I felt. Um, and and this is something I talk to my students about a lot. like if my relationship to something hasn't been changed by the writing process, like if I haven't gotten to a degree of honesty and comfort with it, that I feel ready to share it, it's not done, it's not done. Like if it still feels terrifying, it's in process, right? Like I haven't gotten there yet. It's still, it's too vulnerable. I haven't really arrived at what I truly think about what happened. Um, And so in some ways that's one way that I figure out if I've been honest is do, have I made friends with that topic? Like, do I feel ready to talk about it with total strangers? You know, am I ready? Am I ready to be there? And with other people, it really is a kind of like spidey sense. Like I can't, I just know the same way that when you're at a dinner party with someone and someone's talking and they're talking about something that's ostensibly really personal, but it doesn't it doesn't feel real, you know? They feel like they're performing in a way. It's that same recognition when I'm reading something and I can get it about myself. Sometimes what I do is I read my own work aloud and if I start boring myself, I know I'm not being honest.
2: Just thinking about the kind of writing you've, in terms of your first book that was published, and I guess thinking of testimony memoir, they're very like public archives that you have in the world. Hmm what is your relationship to the kind of younger selves you articulate in writing in those books? Like when you go back to them, is it something you struggle with or is it something you can feel compassionate with?
0: Both (laughs) definitely. You know, it's, um, my writing is very much and has always been a space where I say things that feel too scary to say out loud to another person. Um, which makes it really compelling practice. But it also means that there, like you said, there's this archive of me saying unspeakable things and sort of groping my way through an articulation of something that's really hard to talk about. And, you know, I I don't know that anybody wants a public archive of themselves talking or, or thinking through anything. Like, 15 years ago, which is when I wrote my first book. Um, and, you know, times have changed. There are just ways uh, it's cringy. It's like majorly cringy in a lot of ways. And I I would love to go back and like rewrite them with everything I know now. And for that reason, going back is an exercise in compassion. I just have to get there because You know, it's sort of like my students. I was like the age of my graduate students. I was a graduate student when I wrote that book. And I don't tell my graduate students to shut up when they're wrong or in process or learning. And so I try to bring some of that energy to my younger self where I think, you know what? She was doing the best she could with what she had. And that was the best thing she wrote by a long shot. Like, have I grown tremendously? Have I totally reversed what I think about some things now, 15 years later? Absolutely, yes. Um, but it is a good practice in being forgiving and being generous with process and, and really just understanding how possible and probable it is that we will change our minds. I mean, thank God, if I never changed my mind from 15 years ago, I wouldn't never. I would have grown at all. I wouldn't have been able to write more books. So I try to bring that, that spirit of generosity just everywhere I go into the world. Yeah, just
2: bouncing off that, there's a beautiful passage in Bodywork where you articulate how, you, uh, in it you're asking your wife about how she feels about your representations of her in your writing. And I think she responds something like, um, "Of not being afraid of multiple truths surrounding a person, and to feel an openness to that." I it, I found that very beautiful, and I wondered what it meant to be open to multiple truths around a person, a place, or a life, um, within writing and outside of writing. I guess
0: it's huge. It's such a such a great question, and it's such a huge issue for anyone who's telling a story that involves other people, you know? Um, I think I had a much more simplistic idea of what truth was in personal nonfiction, you know? Um, and even in life, right? So I, I, I had an experience writing this essay one time, I think it was for my second book, and I was writing about this um, trip that I went on with my whole family as a kid. And as research for it, I interviewed every member of my family and I was shocked at the result because what happened was I got completely different information from everyone. And I don't mean that they contradicted each other. Like it just was completely different information. They weren't even talking about the same events. Like what they remembered were completely different shared experiences. And it was such a, such a, such a, revelatory experience in terms of understanding that we were all living totally different stories, right? We were all writing from complete or or ex- living from completely different perspectives. And I thought, Oh, right. There are just as many true stories as there were minds present during any event. And so, um, no one's wrong, right? But no one is wholly right either. No one can write the conclusive history of an event where anyone else was present. And so it gave me this real reverence and respect for the various truths that are happening concurrently when something is is shared. And so, you know, when it's someone I love who is there, I show her everything I write that she's present for. And I know that what she remembers is different, you know? Um, and I and I just strive to be faithful to my own truth, but also not to erase or eradicate or grossly offend anyone else's truth insofar as that's possible.
1: Yeah, I was wondering as well, like in terms of, cause you write from real life and, you know, you, you write about real people, and I was kind of wondering whether you've had to develop a sense of boundaries for yourself or kind of to protect other people, but also to protect yourself. Like, has it changed over your career? Maybe I feel like when I f- first started writing, I, I felt that like I had to be very radically honest about everything and expose mm-hmm. everything. And And now that I'm a little bit older, my relationship to that has changed a bit. And I was just wondering... How you feel about that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I relate to to that very much. Um, I think with my first book, uh, I had to put everything in because I didn't know what I was writing, and I didn't know what what kind of truth I was trying to get to. And I didn't, for better or worse, I didn't really think about other people until I was done. I don't think I could have written it if I had. You know, I think I sort of put these like psychic blinders on because it was just too scary and inhibiting to imagine what anyone else was gonna think or say about what I was writing um but I didn't show it to anyone until it was sold and it was basically done um and and I mean my first book was also very much about me it was not so much about relationships it was really sort of a, a, a personal very personal narrative um But I also was so avoidant, you know, I was like, here it is. I don't really want to talk about it, you know. (laughs) And then when I wrote my second book, I thought, you know what, there's a lot of family history in here. Everyone's in this book. And I don't, I don't want to violate my relationships with these people, because I think there's a lot of sort of writing advice out there that says, you know too bad, you're the writer <laughs> or, you know, um, as as one of my writing friends said, they can write their own damn book, you know, which is like great and encouraging if you're feeling really sort of possessed by the fear of other people's eyes. But it's also for me, it's not practical because I'm in relationship with other people and I have a set of ways that I care for people in my relationships and I respect them and I understand the truth of their experience and I want to preserve those relationships and I want to be respectful. And so um with my second book, I sent it to all of them and I was like, I can't make promises um because it is my story, but I want to have the conversation. I want to hear about how it affects you. I'll do the best I can, you know? And there was a lot of sort of work and I had to really sift through some stuff and have some really hard conversations. And now I think about it much more conscientiously, you know. I try to go through that phase where I have the blinders on and I'm figuring out what I'm writing about, um, but I try to involve the other people as soon as I know what the story is so that I can handle them with the kind of love and care that I would in my life, you know.
2: One thing in that in in your in Abandon Me, your second book that really struck me and then I was it was really interesting to read in Bodywork you reference back to the craft process of that, was how it opens, the first essay opens in a present tense reflection. And then by the time we get to the last essay, there is uh, a hindsight perspective of sorts. And in in Bodywork, you talk about how for you, it's really not always best to wait for hindsight away, like to have distance away from the subject matter. And I guess that's like, for me felt quite experimental and radical about your memoir writing. And I wonder what that was like, like your choices for that, like the possibilities of that, those choices of writing in a continually evolving present, and I guess also the challenges that that must have also had. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's one of the most common things you hear said about the craft of writing memoir is that you need space in between so that you can have Insight, right? And I think, especially after I published my first book, any young memoirist will know that you know older writers are like, "What do you have to write about? You haven't lived." Um, And I think for me, there's multiple factors. One is that the longer I wait, the less I remember. I don't have a photographic memory. I mean, I write everything down, but the story that I'm going to be able to write about and and the vividity of the details that I'll be able to access in my memory is gonna change radically from a week later, a year later, to 10 years later. The book I would write now about having been a dominatrix would be so different because I would not remember all of that. Um, And the other thing, and, and probably the more instrumental factor is that writing is my best way of thinking. I come to insight through the process of processing my experience in language. And so waiting 10 years isn't going to give me insight as much as writing 300 pages is. (laughs) You know, it's in the writing that I'm going to come to an understanding. And of course, I won't have the layered perspective of hindsight. That can come later. Um, But I will be able to derive meaning from writing about an experience and it will be immediate. And I think in a book like Abandon Me, which was very much about the immediate experience, um, in many ways of being in this very intense relationship, um, that was the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write a book that was in technicolor emotionally. Right. And, and it was about sort of Sort of clawing my way out of that experience, you know. Um, but it wasn't going to have the the retrospective sort of layers of meaning that the childhood material might.
1: Um, as well, you write a lot about um, kind of the relationship between writing and trauma, and kind of like writing as a way of processing things, as you said. But I, I wonder, do you feel like that is more complex with trauma? I think lots of people like see writing as a kind of healing which it can be in many ways but I was wondering is it sometimes more complicated than that or is there a danger in in that
0: yeah absolutely I mean I think when when people talk in a sort of cursory way about writing or making art as um, healing they're imagining that it's like a soothing pleasant comforting (laughs) process but you know, recovery from trauma is not comfortable. Um, And writing is not a substitute for therapy, right? So, but, you know, one of the things that I figured out, um, partly because I was writing body work, and I started reading all of these books about trauma theory and trauma recovery. And I was so struck by the analogies between those forms of therapy and my experience of writing and central to pretty much every theory of trauma recovery through therapy has to do with telling the story of what happened, reconstructing the story of what happened in the mind, in the body, in language. Um, Because what happens with trauma, you know, and I'm like, vastly you know simplifying here is that an experience is too psychically overwhelming and so it 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 sort of is interrupted the person has to detach and sort of freeze in order to survive the experience and so trauma therapy is about recovering the story of what happened and walking through it so that the psyche can sort of conclude it and move on right and it doesn't just get stuck kind of skipping like a record at that one moment when it was too intense and it's you know, when I'm writing, I'm very much going back to the past and reconstructing, creating a kind of diorama of the past so that I can fill in the parts that I wasn't aware of or that felt overwhelming at the time. Um, And I think, you know, similar to trauma therapy, if you try to rush it, if I try to rush it and move too quickly through painful past experiences, I'll just have the same response. I'll just freeze or detach And it's no good, you know, because what I'm trying to write is an embodied emotionally and psychologically present retelling of the past. And so, you know, when my students or friends are like, oh, I just have to make myself do it. I'm like, no, don't make yourself do it. That will absolutely backfire what you need to do is go slow and take care of yourself the way that you couldn't when it was happening which means stopping whenever it gets overwhelming and taking the time it takes to sort of walk through in an awakened way what happened
1: yeah I think a sort of lesson that I have learned is I felt that as when I'd written about something I dealt with that then like okay I've dealt with that the book's closed move on with my life that's over I don't have to think about it anymore but you know life doesn't work like that and your relationships to things are changing all the time and I was wondering if yeah like your your relationship to things that you've written as you like move on and work on other projects do you feel differently about it or have you had a similar experience a different experience
0: yeah I do um I absolutely understand why there's this idea of the writer who just keeps working on one book for their whole life and never finishes it because we keep changing, right? And our understanding, my understanding of the past just keeps sort of exfoliating as I get older. I have more and more perspective on it and and sometimes it does make its way back into my work. There are certain events or moments that I have returned to in my work and it's kind of like turning a little prism and seeing a different facet of it and you know i've i've had some conflicted feelings about it because i don't i think there's a part of me that's afraid of of other people being like oh there she goes again about being a dominatrix it's a very loud topic you know um but what the way i answer that fear in myself is by thinking about my own reading pleasures and something that i love is going back through the body of work of a writer who I appreciate and seeing the way that they turn their own prisms, whether it's in fiction or nonfiction, there are themes and concepts and certain kinds of events um, that they return to like touchstones over and over again. And by which you can sort of measure their own developing ideas and self. Right. And I, I think that's one of the things that writers give us over a lifetime's work is a demonstration about how our ideas can change over time and the ways that we change over time. And our work is a map of that.
2: I wondered whether in terms of writing body work, because your first three books were memoirs and with body work, I guess normally it's a craft book, but obviously it feels much more than that. Did you find it difficult to have the shift in tone that that might've required? Like. How was that?
0: Actually, it was pretty fun <laughs> because it wasn't like with my other books, I was sort of doing this like deep wrenching personal work where I was sort of dredging the lake of my own experience and reckoning with some really hard things and doing intense emotional work. And there was emotional work in writing body work, but I don't know. It was really fun to sort of take my own writing process and my own experience of writing and to really look at what it had meant and what it was made of. And it was actually much more pleasurable than the other kinds of writing I've done um, because it was, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't writing about trauma. I was writing about writing about trauma, which I'd already done the sort of hardest work when I wrote the book. And so I was really, it it was kind of joyful because I was able to see the ways that writing had carried me and the way that process, like it had yielded, it's yielded more rewards than anything else I've ever done in my life. You know, it's just, um, been truly transformative, you know, and it was so clear in looking at it that I felt sort of giddy being like, oh my gosh, like what I'm telling my students is really true. Like it has a hundred percent, I come to it honestly, it's really been my own experience as a writer. And it just, um, yeah, so I would say that it was, you know, it was more intellectually rigorous, but um emotionally it was less heavy and it was sort of more fun.
2: because mm, I was as you were mentioning your own process of going back to writers you love across their body of work. I guess I was thinking, well that kind of reads a lot like reading your body work in terms of right. on your own. But, yeah,
0: I yeah. <laughs> sort of making a study of my myself, looking at the archive of my own experience and and drawing conclusions from it. And I mean, and it also very much sort of demonstrates something I love about writing nonfiction, was which is that I get to I get to think and feel deeply about my own experience, but I also get to move into the more analytical researcher, kind of detached brain, um, and think about it more sort of technically which is really fun and less stressful
1: (laughs) and finally I I think you write about this specifically in your relationship to sex writing but I sort of feel like it's what you're doing with all of your writing in general about how um, you tell your students often to um, separate the the narrative's that we've learned or downloaded, I think you say, to to, to find your own way of telling a story. Um, and I wondered if you could just explain what you mean by that, maybe in relation to sex writing, but sort of to writing in mm-hmm. general.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think... <sighs> It really uh, reverberates in every area of sort of life and certainly in terms of writing where, you know, as I was thinking about writing about sex, I realized how if I didn't examine the way that I was operating on sort of social prescription or social conditioning in my life, there's no way that I could write kind of an awakened, present seen, you know, in in my own work. I would just be reiterating sort of the movies I'd seen or the ways that I had sort of performed in my own life um, in order to sort of create an experience for someone else, right? And so um, this is something that comes up again and again and again in all of my work, you know, where um, I want to write work that is honest and that is embodied, and that is putting myself at the center of my own story, um, both sort of literally and figuratively, right? Which means that in my actual life, I have to be doing that kind of work. And it's like a little trick I play on myself over and over and over again, you know? And I I reference, um, at the end of that essay about sex writing, I reference the work of Audre Lorde, who is um, a writer I've learned a lot from and a thinker I've learned a lot from. And she writes, she she writes this definition, Um, of the erotic, not just as sexual, but as a way of inhabiting one's life fully and of really being embodied and present and active and ambitious in every way of living, right? And I think she likens sort of, it could be sex, it could be building a bookcase, it could be writing a poem, it could be doing anything and sort of this aspiration of existing fully in one's life no matter what we're doing. And it's such a high bar, right? Um, but it is the thing that I want for my work and that I want for my students and it is also the way I want to be living.
2: That feels a very beautiful place to leave it. Thanks so much for coming on uh, to chat to us today. Thank
0: you so much for having me. Yeah, it's such wonderful questions. Thank you so much.
1: If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online.
2: We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.